Good morning, everybody, and welcome once again to the Sunday morning gathering of Redemption Hill Church. If it's your first time, we, really, we always take it as a special uh, gift from God when we see people come here. We realize you could be in a number of places this morning, and we don't take it lightly that God sent you here. We do hope that you're warmly and well-received. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, let me pray, and then we'll begin there, and I'll tell you the rest of what we're going to do with the rest of our time. My Heavenly Father, I just want to ask for your help right now. Happy Father's Day to you, and uh, I just want to ask for your help. We're about to go through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 over the next few weeks. And I am, I'm going to have to say things about you that will challenge all of us. We're going to have to say things about the Holy Spirit and about the church that will challenge all of us, but hopefully also that will, will encourage all of us. So please help me. Uh, in our limited time, to emphasize only those things which would prove most helpful for those that you have gathered here today and over the next couple of weeks. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Before I read this to you, let me, let me read you, let me read you a, a little note that was written by a man's hand, or rather by a man's nose to his hand. Here's this note. Dear Hand, it occurred to me this morning that I'm actually much more special than you. After all, I'm on the face. And you know the face is the most important part of the body. When people meet us, they may touch you for a brief moment, but they continue to look at the face. And when they do, they see me right there in the middle of it all. Yes, it's true the eyes do tend to get the bulk of the attention, but at least I'm still on the face. I mean, think about it. I'm in every picture, even the mugshots on Facebook in the city. While you, on the other hand, no pun intended, are often cut out of the picture. Anyway, anyway, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I just thought it would be good for you to remember how much more important I am to the body than you. Always looking down at you, your friend knows. Oh, yeah, yeah, P.S., before I forget my manners, thank you so much for writing this down for me. <laughs> As Christians, we, we need each other more than we realize. And more often than we would care to admit, I think we find ourselves looking down our noses at each other because we, we feel like we possess something from God that another Christian or another group of Christians does not. And this was precisely what was going on in the city of Corinth, in the church there at Corinth. You know, we're not talking about the, the culture outside of Christ, but the church itself. And isn't it, isn't it the kind of thing that we also find, if we're honest, in our own church and in other churches as well? I would like to be able to tell those, especially if you're not a Christian, I would like to be able to tell you this morning that when you came into this room, and you, you took your place among a group of primarily Christians, that you had entered a part of the world where these things are fully worked out. But I'm sure the average person here in the room will be able to tell you that's just not the way it works. And so we're all in process of becoming the kind of people that God wants us to be. Paul began to write to the Corinthians because they were, they were very confused, not only about spiritual gifts, but about the church itself. And that confusion was leading them to become divided unnecessarily on the basis of the spiritual gifts they had received 
and that they were then able to display. And so Paul wrote this section of his letter, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, to give the Corinthians some much-needed perspective. And so we want to be helped by the perspective that they gained from the Apostle Paul as we read. So let's, let's pick it up now in, in chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter. And after that, I'll come back and I'll tell you what we'll do with the rest of our time. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another faith, by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing, by one Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, 
and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Heavenly Father, help us to get the beginnings of this more excellent way to show the Holy Spirit in our public gatherings that you're going to talk to us about today, next week, and the week after that. Help us to understand the nature of the Corinthian problem. And Lord, let let these messages serve as a kind of vaccination against those things. Preemptively, let, let this help us to develop a kind of immunity to the unnecessary division and the problems that were happening in Corinth. Wherever we need to, to recognize those things among ourselves and repent, I pray that you would give us the insight to see it and also the, the strength of heart to repent. And then I pray that you would also comfort us again with the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done to make it so that you continue to strive with a people like us who often find themselves on the wrong side of today's message. And we ask all these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. What I want us to do with the rest of our time is to go first of all through verses 1 to 13 so that we can see where on the one hand, Paul begins to speak to us about how Christians are the same as a result of the Holy Spirit's work. And yet on the other hand, he also in that, in that section begins to speak about how Christians are different as a result of the Holy Spirit's work. And then what I want to do is in the next section of this chapter, I want us to look from verses 14 to 31 at what begins to happen to our churches when we confuse the two. How are Christians the same as the result of the Holy Spirit's work? How are Christians different as a result of the Holy Spirit's work? What begins to happen to our churches when we confuse the two? When we say and insist upon the fact that we are different where the Bible says we're the same, or where we insist upon the fact that we are the same or should be the same where the Bible says that by God's design we are different. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Right away, Paul begins to speak to the Corinthians in a manner which makes us all aware of the fact that on one hand, it is very possible to be extremely experienced when it comes to spiritual gifts, and yet at the same time to be completely uninformed about them. This was the situation at Corinth. All the experience in the world with manifestations of the Holy Spirit, wonderful things happening, miracles being done among them, and the the very fact that these things were going on made the Corinthians feel as if they were experts on the issue of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts, and yet the Apostle Paul does not share their opinion, and we don't need to go past verse 1 to see it. He says, I do not want you to be or to remain uninformed. And, And I think that would be the heart of the Apostle Paul, certainly the heart of God for our church today. Redemption Hill, about spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be uninformed even if you are indeed very experienced. Because our experiences don't always lead us to the truth that we need. 
If experiences automatically gave us truth, perhaps we would not need to continue reading. We're well experienced, some of us. But God is of the opinion that even experienced people need to be instructed according to truth. And in His grace and mercy, He speaks to us from the Bible. So we come to the Bible today as a church to be informed by God concerning spiritual gifts, regardless of our various experiences. The Apostle Paul continues, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. And incidentally, you can properly divide the world into two groups, Christians and pagans. And I know that's, that's hard for some people to hear, but it is one of the ways that the Bible describes the difference between groups of people. You are either a part of God's family through faith in Jesus Christ, having believed that He came and suffered and died in your place for your sins, made payment and restitution to God for the lives of sin that we live, centered on ourselves, and that God accepted this payment, proved it by raising Christ from the dead, and gave us full pardon for our sins because of what Christ had done. You either believe that and you are a Christian because of it, or you are among other terms, what the Bible would call a pagan, which means that your, your way of living and your way of thinking and approaching life is based primarily not on, on thoughts and truth that have, have been revealed by God to us, showing us how we are to relate to God, to each other, and to the rest of the world, but rather you are operating on a set of ideas that really come from man toward God. It's a, it's a man-made religion saying, here's how we will attempt to please and get to God versus receiving revelation from God about how it is He has come to us and done what we could not do. There are only those two choices. So we're either Christians this morning or pagans. Um, and, and hopefully, this is the, I mean, I make no apologies for this. Hopefully, if any of us are still rightly under that label of pagans this morning, I do hope that you would leave a Christian. I just hope the Holy Spirit does something this morning that would cause you to leave a Christian. And I also want you to hear this. I'm, if you stick around here long enough, you'll, you'll come to really believe that we don't consider Christians to be better people than pagans. You will really come to believe this. In fact, we often think that our own sins are worse than yours because we sin against the indwelling Holy Spirit telling us the right way to go. We often think that we should be rightly held more accountable for what we do wrong in the sight of God than even you. But we do not want to withhold from you the truth that you also stand accountable to God for the lives that you live. And that when you hear truth, he wants you to respond appropriately. Um, being converted by the Spirit from paganism to faith in Christ. That, that was a, we do too many of these, this will be long. You know, verse 2, that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. When all you have are mute idols, you have no choice. You have to try to make up truth for yourself. You have to try to figure things out for yourself. But when you understand what the Bible is teaching us and you have a God who speaks and reveals truth, you can simply come to the Bible, read what He says, and allow your thoughts in your life to be shaped by what God says. And so let's pick this up 
in, in verse 3, therefore I want you to understand toward the end, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. This was probably the first and the most important thing the Corinthians were missing. It is very clear as we continue to go through this that they had begun to believe the lie that there were some of them, some of these Christians in Corinth, were the super spiritual Christians. And they were the ones who had the Holy Spirit. And there were others who were those plain or average Christians who had simply believed in Jesus Christ. But they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul says, have they confessed that Jesus is Lord from their heart? No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. No one can, some of you look like, like is, you, do you have your Bibles open? Look at these with me. It's in your Bible too. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Wherever we find a heartfelt confession that Jesus is Lord, it is because someone by the mercy and grace of God has been converted from paganism to faith in Christ such that they give the first and most universal manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the confession of the Spirit. The first way that Paul says we're the same by the work of the Spirit is that we all have the same confession. Jesus is Lord. And having said that, it, Paul is now free to go on and to talk about some of, the, some of the ways in which we are different by the Spirit's work. Verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? Why does God give a Christian the manifestation of the Holy Spirit? When a Christian finds himself or herself in a public gathering like this, or like our, our communities that meet in the homes throughout the week, why would God give a manifestation of the Holy Spirit to or through one particular believer? Verse 7 tells us, For the common good, which is one of the first things we need to always remember, everyone look at me, that we need to remember about the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit that we perhaps will demonstrate by God's grace. The, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, or the gifts, if you would, of the Holy Spirit come to us with more than us in mind. I imagine what a strange thing it must be to heaven for a Christian to become proud of some particular display of the Holy Spirit through his or her life. I could imagine someone in heaven saying, we, we, didn't, we didn't give that to her for her to feel so wonderful about herself. It was for the common good. We actually, that, that gift of, of healing that gift of miraculous healing, we were actually more concerned about the other person that needed it. They happened to be there. Let's give it to them. We didn't mean for this to become a statement of how special that healer was. No, the manifestation of the Spirit comes to us with more than us in mind. Not an occasion for pride, but an occasion for 
service. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's going to happen a lot today. Verse 7, to each, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And it's really interesting that here in verse 8, you see the Apostle Paul bearing this out in what he teaches about these, if you want to number them, nine spiritual gifts or nine manifestations of the Spirit. You can use those terms interchangeably. Paul begins to say, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one, verse 8, is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Watch Paul's emphasis. Is his emphasis on the particular gifts, or is it somewhere else? To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And in case you missed this point, down in verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same. What's Paul's point? Is Paul's business here to give the church a list of spiritual gifts and for us to use them almost like a, a set of shoes that we try on to see which one fits and which one do I have? And, and am I one of the special Christians because I have this one? And look at my shoes. Is that what Paul is doing? Yet isn't that exactly what we do? Am I now suggesting that there's anything wrong with trying to discover how God primarily shows Himself through us in a public gathering like this for the common good of others? No. There's everything good with trying to figure out how the Holy Spirit shows Himself through you. However, I just want to warn us against this business of of making the, the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit something that terminates on us when we think about them. Just going to try this on and I've got the gift of teaching. Hey, that's not what the Apostle Paul is after. In fact, he is correcting an error that they are bringing over from their paganism into the church. You see, as pagans, they were accustomed to multiple spirits, many gods. And depending upon which god you had received your empowerment from, you were a super spiritual person or a not-so-spiritual person. Perhaps you had received some kind of empowerment from Zeus or Aphrodite or one of these really high echelon type of gods, and you were the special people, the really spiritual people, if that were the case. But the others that just kind of got theirs from, I don't know, Hercules, I I don't know too many of the Greek gods anymore. But if you didn't get your empowerment from one of the really special spirits, you weren't really a person of very much account in the assembly. There were different classes of Christians, or rather of pagans, in their gatherings. But the Apostle Paul is very careful to say here, that is not how it works with Christ. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And on and on and on. Faith, but only by the same Spirit. Healing, but only by the same Spirit. In other words, what's his point? Doesn't matter how varied you are in the different ways that the Holy Spirit tends to primarily show Himself through you, that can never become a basis by which you separate yourself into different classes of Christians. Because all of these, first of all, are given by one and the same Spirit. And so here we see the the Apostle Paul telling us at one and the same time, You're you're different, 
in the way that the Holy Spirit primarily shows himself through you in the public gatherings of the church, but at the same time, you're the same in the sense that all of these manifestations come from one and the same Spirit. And therefore, you should never be tempted to think that you're better than or less than another believer. He goes on. Verse 10, to another comes the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills or as he determines. And I'm going to say this once before I forget What you will not hear me do today or over the next couple of weeks is go through what each one of these gifts of the Spirit is. And to give you a definition of what it is, uh, an example of it in the Scripture, what it looks like in operation, and whether or not you might have it. So I just want to, if anyone is disappointed by that, I want to disappoint you ahead of time, right up front, and go on. And the reason I'm not going to stick on it is because the Apostle Paul does not. And I want the emphasis of the passage to be the emphasis of the message. Is that clear? That's, a, that's a, one of the things that you'll find is characteristic about the teaching of the church. All right, so, but there is, let me give you this. There is a reference, a resource I want to give you. If you go to www.theresurgence.com and just type in in the search bar, spiritual gifts, Mark Driscoll has actually done a very good series on this that does exactly what I just told you I'm not going to do. So even better, you can still benefit from, from his study and his work, and, and I can go on with verse 11. The Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. Why does the Apostle Paul add this piece that these are given as the Holy Spirit determines? Kind of removes the occasion for boasting and pride, does it not? Let's say you are able, by the Holy Spirit's empowerment, to heal a sick person at a particular occasion. Were you the one who healed the person? Or was it God coming through you to heal the person? Are you really that special now when you compare yourself to the person who was healed or to another person that has never had that experience ever in their life? Are we to create a separate and higher class of Christians on the basis of those who are able to throw their handkerchief or their jacket at the first few rows in a church gathering and have everybody fall out and some get healed. I don't, I don't think we necessarily are in the position where we have to despise anything that God might do by His Spirit, no matter what the, the medium is He chooses to use, because the manifestation of the Spirit is apportioned as the Holy Spirit determines. And this might offend some people, but listen, I'm not even so sure, I'm not even so sure that we should really allow ourselves to, uh, let me say this, I just think think we need to be careful even about how we criticize some of the people on TV. You know, I, I don't want us to criticize, I mean, certainly I think it's okay to point out error where error exists, but I, I don't want us to criticize other Christians to the point where, where we may be forcing ourselves to deny that in His sovereignty, God may still choose to do some very good things for people, even if the person through whom those good things are being done 
is promoting a great deal of error in the process. Is that fair? I just, I, just, I just think that there's probably more benefit for us and for the church if we, if we stick to doing what Paul and others do in the Bible, which is for the sake of those that we are called to care for, pointing out error where error exists, redirecting toward truth, but perhaps leaving a, a good deal of the judgment to God. It's just something that I'm learning as I continue to grow. But the Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. And from this point on, what the Apostle Paul begins to do is very much just give them an illustration. Okay, Corinthians, I can tell you don't really understand spiritual gifts. You certainly don't understand the Holy Spirit himself. And you, you, quite honestly, you, you've completely missed the ballpark on the issue of what the church is and how the church is designed by God. And so he says, I better, I better give you a picture of something you do know in order to help you understand what you don't. And he, he basically says, you know what? The church, the Christian church, is, is like the human body in some ways. And at this point, they're saying, okay, we can, we can follow that. We know some things about the human body. And here's what the Apostle Paul begins to say. For just as the body is one and has many members, fingers, toes, eyes, nose, And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. This is a statement of fact. Look at the human body. Look at the human body really quick. It is easy for us to see with even our naked eyes how a finger on my right hand is connected to a toe on my left foot. The body has what we call connective tissue that connects one part of the body to another. And we can see it. We've got bones and ligaments and sinews and skin. We can see how those things connect the different members of our human body. It is not so easy to see that with the church. Because when we look at the church, we see a number of people, a number of individual human bodies, if you will, that appear very much to us to be completely separated by space. And they are. And aren't we all glad? I mean, that would be very chaotic. But... But this is one of the things Paul's trying to say. I need you to listen to me. I'm about to tell you something which is true, but which you cannot see except with the eyes of faith. Just as the human body is one, so it is with the church, with Christ. Jesus had one human body when he was here on earth walking among us, and now we can say that so it is with Christ and not simply so it is with the church because today the body of Christ, as we'll see in a bit, is composed of many human bodies. And Jesus' work is going forward at, I want to say at lightning pace, but that may not be the case. In any, in any case, what we do see in verse 12 is that the, the body of Christ is one just as the human body is one. Now, suppose you were to ask me, how is it that I would come to believe this? It doesn't look like it. You look like individuals. Why should I believe that the church is every bit a unit as the human body. Well, verse 13 would tell us why you should believe this. There's something the Holy Spirit has done to make that a reality. And verse 13 tells us what it is. It is this way with Christ for, or because, verse 13, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. So there again, there, 
With these truths, there can no longer be any of these distinctions between you regarding ethnicity or class. It doesn't matter if you were a Jew or a Greek or you were a slave or you were free. Your ethnicity, your socioeconomic background and status has nothing to do with this. Because God has done his work in designing the church so as to remove any ground and any possibility for these types of class distinctions. There are no super-Christians among us. Nor any inferior Christians. Now watch, watch how this works. Six years ago, seven years ago, verse 13 forced me to change what I believed. Seven years ago, for the first six years of my life as a Christian, I found myself primarily in circles where I was taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was, was something that some Christians had experienced and some had not. Can anyone identify with that? And I don't know what, what just the grace of God uh, in my life. Maybe the 50th time I had read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And for whatever reason, maybe I wasn't looking for one of the things that I was usually looking for in that chapter when I was reading this day. A voice just kind of stood out to me and stopped me in verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That word all was inescapable for me on this day. Some of you have a new international version in your lap and it says, for by one spirit, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And so there's a, there's a, a teaching out there in the church that this is a different kind of baptism. There is, there is a baptism with the Holy Spirit that puts people, uh, that puts people into this uh, second category of super-Christian on fire for the Lord, all kinds of terms that we use. But then there is this other baptism performed by the Holy Spirit himself on a Christian that puts this Christian into the body of Christ. By one spirit is the teaching. And they take that word by, and they say that this is a a baptism done by the Holy Spirit, mentioned nowhere else in Scripture, but that this one is the one that puts someone into the body of Christ. And then after that, they need the other baptism with the Holy Spirit, to give them this special kind of power that the super-Christians have. With all due... Uh, listen, I, this is what I thought for the first six years. So, Listen, to say nothing against people who believe that, I just want to be very clear, and for our own church, it's not biblical. It really is not biblical. And I know that that is a very hard thing for some of us to hear this morning. It was hard for me seven years ago. Because it means that I had misunderstood and mistaught something for six years. But you know, I, I think this is the way things work. I, I don't suppose there's any one of us in here who would raise his or her hand if I were to say, how many of you think you understand the Bible perfectly today? I mean, yet if I were to boil that down to a specific, like, how many of you think you understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit perfectly? And how many of you are willing to entertain the, the possibility that just like me, you perhaps walked into the room this morning with the incorrect understanding of it, it would become so personal to you that you would probably feel a little bit worse. And you'd, you'd probably hesitate to say, maybe I have the wrong idea of this. But I, I just want to encourage you. I mean, if you're, if you're willing to let the Bible instruct you here, it's really good. 
it's really good when you allow the Bible to shape your beliefs. Uh, for instance, it, it's very clear here. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. There are only seven places in the New Testament where the baptism with the Holy Spirit is mentioned. In fact, I'll, I'm going to read them to you. Seven places. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Mark chapter 1, verse 8. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John chapter 1, verse 33. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Acts chapter 11, verse 16. And this last one that we have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. In all six of the references that you see up here on the screen, it is clear that we are speaking about a baptism with the Holy Spirit that Jesus performs on those who are coming to him. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 is the first place we see it in the Gospels. And there we read John the Baptist saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That same statement is repeated. It comes up in all four of the Gospels. John the Baptist saying that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, just as it was characteristic of John's ministry to baptize people with water for repentance, it was characteristic of Jesus' ministry to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. That was the element of his baptism to baptize them with the Holy Spirit into the new covenant community of God. The other two references that you see up on the screen in the book of Acts come from Jesus and Peter, who quotes Jesus in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, after he was raised from the dead and was sitting with his disciples before he returned home, he says this, <clears throat> John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And it's clear that this being baptized with the Holy Spirit happened for them that were gathered there on the day of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2. Very clear. So those of the Pentecostal persuasion or the the super charismatic persuasion who would say, but the baptism with the Holy Spirit, we see it referred to here in Acts chapter 2, and there everyone who received the baptism with the Holy Spirit spoke in tongues and prophesied, and, and so that is to become normative for all of us who have that experience today. Therefore, if we see someone who is claiming to be a Christian but who has never spoken in tongues or prophesied in this manner under the influence of the Holy Spirit, it must be that they simply have not received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Because all who receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit will speak in tongues and prophesy in this manner. But I, I was talking with Tim Gleason this past week and he, he was pointing out so well, you know, I, it's very interesting that so many of these people don't go all the way with that comparison. Which, which of us insists today that the tongues of fire must appear? I just thought that was brilliant. I mean, just... That no one is saying that there should be the tongues of fire as well. Well, where do we draw the line? What things which are descriptive of things which happen to them are necessarily prescriptive of the way they should happen for us today? 
What we learn in the Bible is that not everything that is descriptive of what did happen is necessarily prescriptive of what should happen. And we don't want to confuse the two. This baptism with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 had to happen for these believers after they had received the Holy Spirit internally, after they had already come to faith in Christ. There had to be a period of time in between their receiving the Holy Spirit in that way and being baptized with the Holy Spirit because this was a unique point in the history of the entire world. No one had been baptized with the Holy Spirit into the new covenant community of God until Jesus had been raised and and ascended to the Father. This is the first time it was happening. And we see cases where people are made to understand that that is what's happening in the book of Acts. You see him going, and here we have it again in Samaria in Acts 8, and here again with the Gentiles in Cornelius' home in Acts chapter 10. But we don't confuse this. When we come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's very clear that when we speak about the baptism with or by the Holy Spirit, you know why it's not the baptism by the Holy Spirit? so that it's distinct from what we read in these other six passages? If you and I could actually read Greek, you would would immediately notice that the Greek preposition, the object of the preposition, everything here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is the exact same Greek construction as everything you see right there in those six passages. It is unbiblical, it is incorrect, even when it's done by well-meaning Christians, it is incorrect to say that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we are hearing about a baptism done by the Holy Spirit with an unnamed element that is nowhere else mentioned in Scripture. It is not the case. And I can say with all humility, those who tell you different are wrong. They are wrong. They do not understand the Bible as well as they need to in this particular matter. And to me, it is not a matter of little consequence. Because now we're moving to verses 14 to 15, or rather 14 all the way through 31, and we're, we're looking at, is this a matter of little of consequence, or is there something important that we lose? What begins to happen if we confuse the two? Where the Bible says we're the same what begins to happen where we insist that we're different? And where the Bible says that we're different, what begins to happen if we insist that we're the same? The Bible says that all are baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. We say that some are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and others are not. The Bible says... Well, let me... Let me Let me show you this before I I, I bring it up and say the Bible says. Here's another error that is often perpetuated. Everyone who is baptized with the Holy Spirit will speak in tongues and prophesy, especially speak in tongues, right? That's the big one. Show of hands. How many of you have, have heard that before? Have believed it? Have taught it? Good. I'm going to read you a list of questions down at the end of chapter 12. Keeping in mind that in verse 13, all have been baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. 
Now we're going to take that group of people who have all been baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ and we're going to ask some questions about them. Verse 29, are all apostles? What's the answer? I'm going to need some feedback here. What's the answer? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Are you sure? Are you sure? Or is this one of those questions in the series of rhetorical questions that has a different answer? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Are you sure? Are you sure? Is that okay? Really? Really? Do all speak with tongues? Are you sure? Is that okay? Really? It will be here. It will be here at Redemption Hill. Um, it is clear from the Bible that in verse 13 of chapter 12, all have been baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Paul says that's how you became a member of the Christian church. You don't get in to the church. You don't become part of the body without the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's what puts you in. And of the group of us who have been placed within the body of Christ through the baptism performed by Jesus with the Holy Spirit, it is taught to us at the end of chapter 12 that not all of us speak in tongues. We are sure. It's okay. We really believe this. And so should you because it's taught in your Bible as well. Now, what begins to happen when we insist that only some of us, contrary to the teaching of the Bible, have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, and therefore we're different where the Bible says we're the same, and on the other hand, all of us should be expected to work miracles, speak in tongues, even though the Bible teaches that, that there's room for difference here. Well, what begins to happen is verses 14 through 26. We begin to see some Christians developing a great deal of envy and a sense of inferiority. Verse 14. The body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. This is exactly what begins to happen. We now have some people who find themselves in an environment where they are told, if you had really embraced the Holy Spirit, you would have a particular experience of speaking in tongues, or there would be some other manifestation accompanying your confession that Jesus is Lord that would prove to us that you've really gotten the fullness of the Spirit. And in their desire to be close to God and to be as close to God as they think all of these other people are who, by God's sovereignty, have probably received a genuine gift of the Spirit, they say, 
I must have this too. And then they try very hard to get it. I remember being in a, in a I got a, a few calls and a few emails about five years ago from some students at the University of Richmond who had taken a class at a, at a nearby church. And at the end of the, the class period, it was determined there would be a time of prayer for all in attendance so that anyone who had not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit would receive it. And so according to what was taught, these students all gathered and they, they came up there and everybody prayed for them, laid hands on them, praying in tongues out loud over them, and nothing seemed to be working. And so, so one person turns to the students at that point and says, have you confessed all known sin? Because clearly, if, if this is not happening, it certainly can't be any fault of ours. Where Our faith is full. We checked. There must be something wrong with your faith and maybe you're hiding some sin. And these people, listen, well-meaning people. Well-meaning Christians. And I don't mean to suggest that there is no truth to the fact that we sometimes can be hindered in receiving certain things from God because of cherished or unconfessed sin. Listen, there's a cleansing of the conscience that is withheld from us until sin is brought out into the open and confessed. By the way, if you know that you need to confess some kind of sin this morning, don't leave without doing it. Why should you leave with a conscience still weighed down by that guilt. But, but these students were very troubled. They were very confused. And after that night, they called me. And so the next day, I got them all together. And we went over to Stony Point and Chipotle, of course. And as I had a chicken burrito with black beans, mild salsa, of course, a little bit of sour cream, cheese. Um, we just went through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 together. Because they should never have been made to feel envious of other Christians in that environment or inferior to them. Which is exactly what's happening. You've got, you've got a foot saying, well, I'm not a hand. I wish I were, but I'm not a hand. Maybe I'm just useless and I, I don't, there's nothing for me to do here. And maybe I don't fit in. Maybe I'm just not quite up to par. And you see as he goes on, Paul begins to clear this up. No, no, it wouldn't be wise for the ear in verse 16 to say that about the eye either. You know, in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them just as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? We need different kinds of Christians in order to function properly as a church. Envy, inferiority complex begins to happen when we confuse where we're the same and where we're, the, where we're different. You, you see it again also as you pick up in verse 21, not just envy and inferiority, but pride and superiority. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We're very impatient sometimes. If you're the kind of thinking Christian that just wants to learn, we're we're usually impatient with those really mission-minded people who just want to break up every church gathering and go out there and, you know, get all the people that need to be one to the Lord. And, you know, we've got the feet and we've got the heads. And and these two are always going at it. Um, But listen, if you think that the church is only about gathering and hearing teaching and you're, you're the head type, you need to understand you need feet. We've got to go somewhere. And if you're the foot person, you've got to understand that you need to come back and listen and learn. I mean, this is very important. We can't begin to say that we don't need each other. Hey, God is much more suited 
to design the church. He's much more able to design the church the way it needs to be designed than we are. So we will just keep ourselves in the position where we discover who God brings our way, and we'll take it as a cue from him that, aha, this must be a need of the body. Does that, does that make sense? So let's go on. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, in verse 21. Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. As Paul continues to go through, in verse 26 he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is how God has, verse 24, composed the body. He's a great composer, and this is how he has composed the body. And he has done it, verse 25, so that there would be no divisions among us and that all of us would have the same care one for another. So this is where the Apostle Paul leaves us in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Corinthians, some of you are starting to think of yourselves as more important than the others on the basis of which spiritual gifts you possess. That might be how it worked in your pagan environments. That is not how things work in the church. All of you have been baptized with one spirit into the body of Christ. And as I get ready to close, let me ask you one question. Why does God continue to stick with and strive with churches like the Corinthians and like us who continue to divide themselves in these ways? When you came to verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you had read the letter all the way through from the beginning, not too long before you came to this chapter, you would have read something that would have sounded familiar at this point. In chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And you would have said, baptize into, baptize into, drink, baptize into, drink. Where have I heard that before? Baptized into some drink. Chapter 10. Chapter 10. Paul is correcting another problem of the Corinthian church. And watch what he says. He says, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers, this is back in the time of Moses now, watch, our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. If you know the story from Numbers chapter 21, God actually sent snakes among them. The snakes began to bite them. Some of them died. The people cried out to God. And God looks at Moses and says, hey, here's what you do. Take a snake. This symbol of the curse that I sent among you, take that curse, put it on a pole, tell everybody to look. Those who look with faith will be healed. You see the parallel between chapter 10 and chapter 12. Baptized into Moses in chapter 10, drank the same spiritual drink. 
Verse 5, nevertheless, with most, God was not pleased. Chapter 12, baptized with one spirit into Christ, all made to drink of the one spirit. I think Paul's point in verses 14 to 31 is nevertheless, God is not pleased. That's the parallel. Church, God is not pleased with this business of confusing all these things and saying we're the same where the Bible says we're different and we're different where the Bible says we're the same. He's not pleased with the type of envy it makes some feel, the type of inferiority it makes them feel, or the type of pride and superiority it makes others feel. He's not pleased. And what allows him to continue with us and to strive with us is the same thing that allowed him to strive with Israel in the Old Testament. Something has been put upon a pole. Someone has been put upon a piece of wood and lifted up for all to see. Someone has taken upon himself the curse that belonged to us and was lifted up by God as the thing to which our, t- direction, our, our attention should be directed and those who look with faith are saved despite their sin. You knew we would get to Jesus. You're at Redemption Hill. Jesus has been lifted up so that sinners like us, and at this this point, it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 30 years or you're a first-time guest that's been trying to avoid the church for 30 years. Jesus has been lifted up so that sinners like us could be pardoned at His expense. His blood shed for our sins is what causes God to look upon us as individuals and collectively and to say, Jesus, for your sake, I'll stick with them. Happy Father's Day to our Heavenly Father. What a good Father He is. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to ask that You would help us. I I remember how hard it was for me when I first discovered that I had been in error regarding some of these things for six years. I had mistaught them. I felt bad about that. Um, but you know what? That's the story of, of my life and everyone's life. Really, there are just some things we, we don't understand fully, and we are really grateful that you speak to us with clarity from your word. I pray that you would begin to answer any questions that remain unanswered by today's message. And I pray that most of all, you would protect us from the Corinthian problem that you would help us to embrace the truth of what the Bible has to say concerning where the Holy Spirit has made us the same, where He's made us different, and how you speak to us in your Word to keep us from confusing the two, such that you might be able to look at us and say, you know, they're starting to get it. There's starting to be less class distinctions and divisions among them. And at the end of the day, we understand that it isn't even our progress in these things that causes you to contend with and to stay with us, but rather uh, the blood of your Son, your Son lifted up on the pole for us, that we might be forgiven and accepted by you. Amen.